You are listening to the Addiction Support Podcast, episode number 14. Hi, Oak Creek Wellness family. Welcome to Addiction Support Podcast, where I talk with inspiring people who share their knowledge and experience of addiction and what's working for them. This is addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. I'm your host, Melissa Sue Tucker. All right, I just finished up a couple hours ago with recording this episode, and it was really nice because I got to sit on my friend Julie's couch and interview her face-to-face and found out some things about her that I had no idea. I have so much respect for this woman, and I'm really grateful that she was willing to be open and raw and vulnerable in this episode about her journey with addiction and recovery and the reality around all of that. She does mention in the episode about the women's leadership group that she started, and we have over a thousand members as of today, and people are meeting in, I think she said four different cities throughout the US. If you're interested in becoming part of that, I'll put that in the show notes. So addictionsupportpodcast.com forward slash episode 14. You can find out more there. And otherwise, I just hope that you are able to connect and appreciate her vulnerability and her willingness to share her story. And I hope that you get some inspiration out of this as I know that she does. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Encouraging, inspirational, and life-changing content that makes a difference. Created specifically for you by oakcreekwellness.com. All right, I'm sitting here with Julie G. The G's for gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you for being my guest today. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So we're going to jump right into it. Tell me how addiction has impacted your life. Well, that's an obviously a very big, big question. Um, I am 27 years clean and sober. My sobriety birthday is May 13, 1988. Congratulations. Thank you. And I also am the product of an alcoholic household. So I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. My mom was an alcoholic. Um, my grandmother was an alcoholic. My aunt on my father's side was an alcoholic. Um, good Irish upbringing where, you know, the Irish really know how to drink. So that was part of what I was raised with. And, um, but my dad is not, which is Mm. this, you know, which is kind of cool. However, all the women in my life were. So that was a very interesting example of what being a woman was and what it looks like. And, uh, so I learned that alcohol was a way to, um, how you handle things and things get stressful, you drink when, you know, um, when things are hard, you drink, when things are great, you drink, when it's someone's birthday, you drink. Um, my mom was a very high functioning alcoholic. So she went to work. She was a single mom. My parents were divorced when I was five. Uh, so she was single mom, you know, with the raising me and my brother and my father was definitely involved but he, she was the primary caregiver. We were there five days a week. <clears throat> and so she kept a job. She kept the house clean. She kept food in the fridge. There was, you know, high-functioning alcoholic. The only thing that really started, to, that I started to notice was, as I got older, was that she took a lot of naps 
on the weekend, but there would always be a glass of wine next to her. And there was always the box of wine in the fridge. <laughs> it was kind of like, ooh, that's nice. Um, and at my dad's house, my it's a little complicated, but I'll just go with it. Go with it. My aunt purchased my mom's half of the house when my parents got divorced so my dad could keep the house. Hmm. And she never married, and so she moved in with my dad. So brother and sister lived together. She had vodka, Kahlua, everything in the, in the liquor cabinet. And black Russians were her thing, like, mm-hmm. every day. And it was just strange. You know, it's the thing. At the time, you just think it's normal. Right. You know, it's what I knew. Um, so those were kind of the examples that I had. I'm also um, a survivor of uh, sexual abuse from my brother, uh, which also adds another layer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, just to be clear, it's the sexual abuse with him is similar to verbal abuse. So he never actually touched me, but he would put me on display for his friends. Oh. So it was just really icky and creepy and really made my boundaries so weird. Just mm-hmm. really, really weird, and it definitely screwed me up. So I have the, it's like, it's a, there's so many different variables that could play into it. Nature nurture is also something to consider. I was adopted. Oh, wow. So here I was adopted at two days old into an alcoholic household. However, I was through an Irish Catholic adoption agency. So the odds of that young woman being an alcoholic is pretty likely right um and or that being a strain of alcoholism within that family is pretty likely so it it, there's a lot of different cards there's a lot of different bags I was carrying and um when I started drinking I was I went in full force it was I was a full blackout drinker by the time I was 15 wow um sexually promiscuous by the time I was 15. Um, Boundaries, I didn't have any. Um, One thing I did have, I dated this one guy in in high school, and he was as good of a drunk as I was. However, even as screwed up as some of the variables were going into my life, one thing I was very, very clear on, and it's a man never hits a woman. And he was a very explosive personality. And uh, we dated for probably a year and a half, which is a very long time in high school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's like, you know, forever. And um, there was one day where he just got so explosive. And I just looked him dead in the eye. And I say, you lay a hand on me and we're done. So for whatever reason, that piece was very much in me. So I knew right from wrong. I did, I was taught, you know, my moral compass was actually there. I just didn't use it. You know, Mm. so I was a lost soul, really, um, early on. Um, I lost my train of thought, but am I going on the right path of what you want? No, absolutely. It's just (laughs) your story. And 
I am mean, curious to know, like, did your parents try to step in when you were 15 and blackout drunk? Did they know what was going on? Okay, the, um, that's a really good question. Um, one thing that I've discovered with alcoholics and addicts, because I'm cross-addicted, I was using drugs, selling LSD. I was total deadhead touring the East Coast with the Grateful Dead because that's what you did. Wow. Um, selling peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the parking lot for money and, you know, I need a miracle and getting a ticket for the shows, you know. So it's a whole different lifestyle than I am today, which is really, it cracks me up because I think of where I was and who I am today and it's people would never imagine. I don't that. know. You're still a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, you I'm a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I do bring that to the table. Um, but it was just, so, so I definitely, but in any case, getting back to my point, the with alcoholics and addicts that I've, for myself and others that I've met in recovery, we are smart, mm-hmm. we're manipulative, we're fantastic at, putting on different masks when we need to. Mm. We know how to manipulate the situation to make it look like we're all there. Um, Fantastic con con artists. And really was able to, I got away with a lot. I never really got caught until um, I was 17. And at that point, I had really, I'd been going for a long time. Mm. I don't know if they ever realized I was hungover. I don't, I really don't. I just, I would get home. No one ever talked to me about it. Like no one ever said, are you drinking? No one ever said, um, are you okay? You know, none of that was there. Um, And I think of it now being a mother of teenagers. Like how could you not ask those questions? But yet my parents were older. Um, My dad was 45 when I was born. So, yeah, 45 when I was born. You know, and back in the 60s, that's a big, that was really old. Right, and they're from a generation where they didn't get touchy-feely or want to know how you're feeling. And you don't talk about anything. Um, My mom was from the South, and you don't air your dirty laundry. Mm. I mean, so no one talked about anything. No one ever, you know, it was all, you just kind of glossed things over or whatever. Now, keep in mind, my mom was an active alcoholic. So... She didn't know. Right. You know, she wouldn't smell it on my breath or anything because it was on her own breath where she had her own issues. Um, so I did finally get caught, though, and that was when the police officers came to my dad's house looking for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's not usually a good sign <laughs> no. um, when the police come to your your home and... Uh, where's your daughter? And I actually was out with some friends, so I wasn't home. Mm. And my father, of course, was in shock. He had no idea what was about what was going on. And um, I came home, and I knew I was in really, really big trouble because my dad, he would admit that he had an anger issue, but how... I knew I was in trouble was when he would get really quiet Mm. 
because he was always afraid of letting it go because he was afraid if I let this anger go, I'm going to hurt someone. And so he always, he knew that he was an angry man, that he had that potential, but he just never would go there, Mm -hmm. especially with his daughter. And he brought me into his bedroom and sat me down and said, I'm taking you to the police station. Oh, wow. So somehow he convinced the police officers that, um, you know, when she gets home, I'll bring her in. So they didn't wait for me. They didn't search for, you know, they didn't look around town. I was in someone's basement smoking pot, Mm. you know. And I was really very high when I got home, too, by the way. Oh, my. So here I'm. So we head to the police station, and we pick up my mom along the way. And my mom's freaking out. Um, My dad, again, being the calm person that he was and is because of how angry he was um and then they they proceed to tell me or tell my parents your daughter is being arrested for the possession and sell of lsd oh wow she has sold five hits of lsd directly to a narcotics agent and we haven't seen this quality of lsd in a long time and so the alcoholic addict that I was was like, well, of course it was really good because that's what I do. It's like, it's like I'm not selling shit. I'm going to sell, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to sell the stuff, I'm going to sell good stuff. You know, it was like, it, so it was, it, it, I remember that vividly because I'm just like thinking in the back of my head, I was like, of course it was good. Why would you even question that? But needless to say, it was five hits directly to our narcotics agent. Wow. And it was... After a long period of helping this other guy, because obviously I wasn't the big dealer. Right. I was the small dealer. And the guy I was working with, he was the big dealer. So they actually tapped my phones for a couple months. Wow. And, of course, all of this you find out after the fact. Right. And he had been arrested. Uh, They raided his apartment and arrested him about two weeks before I was picked up, week and a half before I was picked up. Hmm. And they just wanted to make sure what who they had, it was going to stick before they found me because they wanted to make sure they had the right guy. And I, I had no idea I was a pawn in the whole thing. But yet I was totally responsible for what I was doing. Totally. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> at 16, 17-year-old, you also think you're, you know, invincible. Right. You know, what. You know, I didn't know any better. So, needless to say, I was I was facing 35 years of jail under youthful offender because of the the level of the crime. Because I was off, I was also associated with the the big drug drug dealer. So the potential of what I could be doing was really big. So they took it really kind of seriously, <clears throat> and um, I ended up getting off with two years probation because I had never had anything before nothing was ever on my record before and all the recommendations or the write-ups that we were getting from people were saying what a good person I was what a you know born leader I was you know doing all sorts of you know it's like unfortunately my attorney was looking for more of the follower type Mm. (laughs) 
write-ups and there weren't many of those, you know, because right. most people saw me as, you know, I was the rebel. I was the one that would start the protests at school. I was really a leftover hippie. I was born in the wrong decade. And um, it, it, was, it was my first cry for help, really. Yeah. And it was at that time, I didn't realize that, of course, everything's hindsight, um, 2020. And now I look back and I was like, that was definitely the first cry for help. And I didn't get it. Mm. So a lot of people in recovery will have issues with against institutions and so forth because a lot of us are screaming for help. And at that point, that was my first yell for help. I wasn't screaming yet, that's for sure. But it was my first cry for help. I got off after one year. The probation officer would look at me and go, what are you even doing here? And... Uh, so no one even again here no one got the help no one no one realized that what was going on was a much bigger deal than what the surface was showing you know and and it was strange it was you know i think of it in now and how strange that is you know how you know kids today they get they get in trouble even the schools will do more than they did then. Yeah. You know, the school never got involved because I didn't sell. Well, I didn't get caught selling on school <laughs> property. <laughs> um, so that was the first cry. Then um, got out of that, then went off to college. And uh, that's when my alcoholism really kicked in full swing. I spent my entire first semester budget in the first two weeks of school. On alcohol? And other, other stuff. Other stuff. Wow. Yeah. And um, I don't remember very much of that first couple of weeks of school, but from what I understand, I had a great time. <laughs> Met a lot of great people, had, you know, had a lot of fun. And, um, but that was, again, it's like, that's not normal. Right. That's just not normal. It's not normal to be blacking out. No. I, you know, like I said, I was a blackout drunk by the time I was 15. And to wake up and not know where I was or who I was with was just crazy. That's it's just not normal. Yeah. So in college, my alcoholism really took to a whole nother level because one, I was away from my parents. I had a lot of freedom and and definitely I didn't have to work. I was really blessed with my father was able to send me to college my brother never went so there were some funds available there so I went to college and um, promiscuity I started dealing again I was um, drinking second year there I ended up getting my car there and Within a month, I had gotten a DUI. Oh, wow. So it was the first time I had my car on campus, and I blew it within the first month. Um, where it was, I had, <laughs> I was a bartender at the college pub as when, when I got older and was 21, and we had a big event. And at the end of the event, we all went to the bar and closing it down, and we all 
did a lot of drinking. And uh, the guy who was performing that night offered me a ride home. I said, no, I'm fine. I'll just, it's, you know, I'm only a mile and a half away. Well, I was driving home, and a good song came on a radio. And instead of turning left, which was a half a block from my house, I went straight so I could hear the song. And I turned the corner, and I'm cruising along, listening to the music, smoking a cigarette, and I dropped my cigarette. So I start to panic a little bit that something's burning in my car. So I pull over. And the lights come on behind me. So I was actually stopped, but they had witnessed me going over the line because I dropped the cigarette. However, I was totally plastered. And I got arrested for a DUI. And this is how crazy the disease is. Like, so when they arrested me, my blood alcohol level, I don't remember the numbers anymore, but it was... um, the test thing didn't work. Is so, that high? well, they couldn't, the, no, the actual thing didn't work. Oh, okay. Like their breathalyzer, it oh. didn't, it, it malfunctioned. So then they had to take me into the police station to do it there. So during this process, it's about an hour. So most people would be getting sober during that hour, right? For me, I had just done four shots of tequila before I left the bar. Wow. So instead of getting more sober, I was getting drunker, so that blood alcohol level was actually increasing during that hour. Mm. So um, I don't even know what the numbers are anymore, but I was it was high. It was very, very high. And um, another example of crying for help. Yeah. You know, it's like getting caught again. During that, so I went to court. Went to court and um, had to proceed into an alcohol awareness class to get my license back. And during this class, a friend of mine said to me, a good alcoholic friend of mine, said to me, don't tell them how much you drink, they'll make you go to AA Hmm. or to a 12-step program. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So, (laughs) (laughs) thanks. They had my back, right? You know, so I went through the whole class and somehow in the back of my mind, I was actually listening. Mm. And it was the first time that I think I started to see maybe I had an issue because during the alcohol awareness class, I started to realize how much I actually was drinking and how dangerous it really was for me. So at the end of the class, they towards the end of the class, they had a couple people come in from a local 12-step recovery group and do a mini meeting there. And uh, again, my friend had told me, don't tell them how much you drink. They'll make you go to those meetings. I was like, okay. But again, for some reason, I was open. There was a piece of me that was tired. There was a piece of me that wanted something different and didn't know how to get it. And so I knew that if I was ever to drive again, I had to quit drinking. It wasn't, (laughs) 
Most people wouldn't think those along those lines, but I drove drunk all the time. Uh, so if I was going to get my license back, I had to quit drinking. If I was ever to drive again, I had to quit drinking. That's what my motive was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to stay alive. It wasn't to, you know, it wasn't because I drink too much. It's just, I just can't drink and drive anymore. So, um, so I ended up quitting drinking. Now, this is where, you know, I, I'm a, I do attend 12-step meetings, and this is where I make clear for a lot of people that are new in recovery to be clear about certain things. And one of them is that I know I can switch addictions easily. Mm. So if it's not alcohol, it can be drugs. If it's not drugs, it could be workaholism. If it's not workaholism, it could turn into sexism. It could, I mean, it's like, it's... It can go down the lines. I have a very addictive personality. It could be food. It could be anything. And so I have to be aware of how I'm reacting or utilizing things in my life today. Hmm. Um, How long did it take you to realize that and accept that? uh, It was, so I quit drinking in 85. I had just turned 21. Mm -hmm. Or no, not just turn 21. Yeah. About that. Yeah. And then it took three more years of drugging to realize that all of it had to go. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why I didn't have a physical withdrawal from alcoholism was because I switched addictions. Oh. I believe that drugs saved my life mm-hmm. in a weird sort of way. Alcoholism saved my life for a certain time period. And I do believe that for me and for many people that are in recovery, there is something about having alcohol or drugs in our lives that actually served a purpose at that time. I believe alcohol and drugs saved my life at certain times in my life because I didn't have any other skills. Hmm. I didn't know what else to do. And so... That was how I dealt with it. Now, other people might deal with it the same way, but aren't alcoholic. Right. There's a difference between somebody that has the addiction and somebody that just drinks, right? Exactly. So it's it's an actual disease. Exactly. So, So other people might have stress and have a glass of wine. I had stress and I would have a bottle of wine. Right. Um, Uh... Well, you and I have talked about this before. Like, I can get to the point I have in the past where I was drinking too much, and I was just like, "Oh, I don't like the way that I feel, so I'm just gonna, you know, cut it out or cut back." And you were, you had said, and that something. makes no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you stop? You're just getting started, right? Um, so I'm, I'm very clear that that in recovery for me today, I have to be very careful about how I'm using TV, how I'm using food, how I'm using work. Um, Because even though I'm clean and sober today, it still doesn't mean the disease is gone. Mm -hmm. The disease is still there and can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. So staying connected with people in recovery helps me keep, it helps keep me grounded and um, also keeps me humble because it is, Literally one day at a time. I didn't get 27 years from, you know, it, 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 it took, you had to add it up. 
and it takes work and it's hard work and getting clean and sober is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Really? And continues to be the focus of my life. Because if I don't keep my sobriety and being clean, then having my family would go away, having my house would go away. I, I have far too much to lose now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting is I've been married to Alan uh, since, let's see, we, we were married in 92, but we met the same summer I got clean and sober. Really? So my husband knows me only clean and sober. My kids only know me clean and sober. And so I have an opportunity to break the cycle, hopefully, mm-hmm. with uh, my kids and with what I was brought up with. I've been very open with my kids about alcoholism and addiction and have made it very clear to them that they are going to have to make decisions for themselves. I don't ban them from drinking. I don't, you know, I. neither one of them are at age, but I don't live with my hand in the sand my head in the sand right well let's talk about that a little bit because let's assume that there are some mothers or some fathers listening that have kids that are teenagers are going to be teenagers what types of things what types of conversations do you have or what types of advice do you give them well one of the things that I did um with my daughter and her friends she's my oldest and I always made it very clear to them that I wasn't in favor of them drinking. I never had alcohol in our home for them. I never hosted parties that allowed them drinking. There's some very heavy-duty laws that put that parents should really be thinking about whether or not they're serving alcohol to underage kids. They could lose everything. It is a big deal. And so some parents would allow that. And it, and it wasn't something I agreed upon necessarily. Right. Here's a classic story. There were, it was prom, and um, I went to the parents' house to, to drop off. They were going to sleep over. I went to the parents' house to drop off the bag and stuff and said, thank you for hosting the party for the kids after the prom. Oh, we're we're not going to be here. I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> we're not going to be here. Uh-huh. Um, it was kind of too late on the e- event to pull the plug on my daughter. Right. So what I did instead was I made it very clear to her and to a couple of her friends that are, she was going with, and this is what I'd recommend for any parent. Big. This is big. Always have that when always have that communication open. And I said to her, if you or any of your friends are ever in trouble, you're afraid or you think someone drank too much or maybe they took something, call me. Mm-hmm. No questions asked. No one's gonna get in trouble. I just want you to be safe. Right. Now That's obviously big. I had said to my daughter, I prefer that you don't drink. Right. I you know, that's that's what my expectation is. But I also know there is there is some experimentation that has to occur for really anyone. And whether or not they're alcoholic or not, you, you might not find that out through the experimentation. Right. But kids do it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's... You I did it. real about it, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend just because they grew up in a 
drug and alcohol free home that they're going to be like preaching that to their friends. Right. That's not the case. No. I grew up in a drug and alcohol free zone and look at what's going on with my brothers. You yeah. Know? So yeah. it doesn't, that doesn't keep them safe. No, it doesn't. But I wanted to make sure that they understood that they, their safety was more important to me than anything. Right. And they're not going to get in trouble. You're not going to lose it on them. No questions You're asked. You're going to get stuff taken care of. Yeah. And so, fortunately, nothing happened that night, but they did drink. Mm. And it. I got really angry, and my daughter thought I was angry at her. And I said, no, I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at the parents right. for leaving you guys to be so vulnerable because, God forbid, something happened to any one of you, and they're not there. Right. They're so responsible. It's their home. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's it's so dangerous. It is so dangerous. So they figured if we're not there, we're not serving it. Mm. But their 21-year-old daughter who was home from college could oversee them and make sure they're okay. It was like, I don't think so. Right. So I really think people make up all sorts of stories to make it okay. And um, that is something that I did not agree with. But at the same time, I... I have to trust my kids mm -hmm. to a certain extent. I have to let them have their experiences because they have to make mistakes. Right. They have to. I had to make lots of mistakes. I hope they don't have to make the same mistakes. Right. But they have to make mistakes to grow. And if I'm keeping that leash so close to home, they're never going to get a chance to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I'd much rather have them make the mistakes while they're in high school or and at home then off that first year of college right. where everything's cut loose. Um, so that's one of the, keeping that communication open with your kids and the realities of alcohol and drugs. I mean, I would ask the kids, you know, so, you know, do you, if I, if, if I needed to get heroin, would you know where to get it? And most, they'd most of the time yes. they'd say yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. could you get pot? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could you get, you know, Probably the easiest thing nowadays is can you get prescription pills? Can you get the Oxycontins? Can you get the, those are, all those pain medications are so readily available. And these kids are selling it. Yeah. And that's gateway for heroin. Absolutely. Well, that's, yeah. You know, yeah. We talk about this. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, I think I'll go try heroin today. It's usually they've had the pills. Pills are really expensive. Heroin's a little bit cheaper. Let's go down that path. It's, it's dangerous. It's frightening. And, and people can OD and die on the pills just as easily as they can in, on the heroin. Absolutely. It's not Absolutely. like one's okay because it's, you know, pharmaceutical. N no. I'm really angry about this. Yes. <laughs> Very fired up about this one. <clears throat> well, that, you know, that I'll give a little NPR plug. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I have to find the, I'll have to find the article, but there was, there was a interview with someone that was talking about the overuse of pain medications and how people are dying from these pain medications that are not addictive. They're mm -hmm. not addicts. And they're taking them as prescribed, but their bodies aren't processing them the right way. Uh -huh. And so patients are being overdosed. Over they're overprescribed. And people are overdosing on these narcotics and they're not addicts. Right. Doctors aren't trained on it. The CDC released a report a month or so ago. This was based on 2014, so I'm assuming that the numbers are even higher now. But it was like every seven minutes or every 11 minutes, somebody in the U.S. 
dies of an opioid overdose. The, the biggest age group are teenagers, and the second is 45 and older. The 45 and older are doing it either because, A, like you're saying, they're taking their prescribed amount, or B, they go back to the medicine counter, they don't remember the last time they took it, so they take it again. It's frightening. And then, you know, the CDC is making recommendations like we need to educate doctors more on this. And Big Pharma says, no, let's just make the pills a little bit harder to crush. Like, that's going to make a difference. Yeah, it's, we are being <laughs> killed. Let's make the pills yeah. harder to crush. And if you think about it, and people are very, you know, wow. doctors are trained by their uh, pharmaceutical sales rep. That's who's training them on this. Yeah, that's who's selling them. Yeah. So They're legal drug dealers. People need to be very, I, I'm very natural. I'm very concerned about that. Natural childbirth. I'm very, I'm terrified of putting anything like that in my body. But, you know, a lot of people think it's okay because it comes from the doctor. Why not? Right. And that's another slippery slope with people that are in recovery as well. I mean, all my doctors, they all, I make it very clear to all of them that I'm an alcoholic addict. Mm -hmm. And so when they prescribe something, it's not, I, it's my responsibility to ask them what kind of drug it is. Mm -hmm. It's my responsibility to stay clean and sober. I don't put it on the doctors. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm at the point in my sobriety that it's mine. And so I'm the one that has to watch out for it. So I'll have those conversations with the doctors now and be like, well, what is this drug? Is it an addictive type drug? Is How is it, you know, how is it used? And so forth and so on. And a lot of times I'm just fine with ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all I needed. Right. You know, take a couple ibuprofen and it'll be good, you know. Well, I think we also need to question why our doctor's giving that. Is that so that we can keep going back to them to get our prescription refilled so that their practice is making money? You know, that's another... We need to be aware. It's a real catch-22. Yeah. yeah. With the internet, it's okay to educate ourselves and know what, really what we're putting in our body. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why I'm doing this is I want to just share with people the fact that people that have addiction are all around us and they're successful people and they're people that are in our community that are making a difference. So I want you to share a little bit of some of the really successful positive things that you've done too. Oh yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, being 27 years clean and sober, it's, it's, I have experienced a lot of gifts of being clean and sober. You have two wonderful uh, kids. Met my husband. Yeah. Got married. I did it the traditional route. I got married first and then had two kids. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> How weird. Uh, yeah, thank you. I didn't do it that you know, way necessarily. Well, it's like, it's, you know, considering how promiscuous I was, right. there, it's, I, I have no idea how I didn't get pregnant early. Right. Um, <clears throat> so two beautiful children, a, a lovely home, um, productive member of society. I'm, you know, it's like, Keep in mind, I used to be a drug dealer. Right. <laughs> okay. So a really good one. I, yeah, it was a good one. I was an entrepreneur right. early on. Really? I ate all my profits, though. That was I wasn't good at mon the money part of it. Um, and now I have a key to the library at the elementary school that I work at. Yeah. I work at this in an elementary school. I work with children, and I was a drug dealer, and now I'm a coordinator for a literacy program and for kids first, second, and third grade. I mean, that they're so opposite. <clears throat> and um, 
You bring together phenomenal people that come in and volunteer with the kids. Oh, I have met, I have met such amazing people. I'm one degree separation from President Obama because one of my tutors, his son was an Air Force One pilot. Wow. You know, so it was just kind of like all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, and then your baseball tie. Yeah, I have a baseball tie um, with uh, Kevin Euclid, one of my tutor's daughters used to, uh, Kevin Euclid used to come to her house all the time. And, yeah. you know, so that was when he was with the Red Sox when he was really good. I don't know where you are now, Kevin. So <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But, um, you know, I've and I've also taken myself on in different ways um, with with going to 12 step programs. That's definitely personal development. It's mm-hmm. it's looking inward. It's looking at how do I want to be different. And I've expanded that and gone on to other personal development companies and classes. And that has, in the last four years, I feel has really catapulted my recovery to a much deeper level. You know, time doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. I can have 27 years, but I could drink today. That's my choice. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, I'm people in recovery or people that are new in recovery will say, well, I can't imagine never drinking again. And I was like, well, I don't imagine never drinking again. I don't, I just look at today. It's 24 hours at a time. And today I choose not to drink. And, um, but it's with doing other personal development work, it's also allowed me to get a little bit deeper, even within my 12 step program and within my sobriety and really taking a look at what is the person I want to be, what's the person I was meant to be, and really claiming um, that woman and becoming a leader in my community and uh, starting a women's organization called Sisters in Leadership. And that was a Something I thought up of in a tent. (laughs) (laughs) The tent on the side of the mountain. In a tent. In a tent. Surrounded by a bunch of women. That's a long story. So uh, uh, in any case that, you know, and now I I have women across country getting together that have done the same work that are supporting each other. And that's amazing. And sometimes I have a hard time taking it all in because it's kind of like, you know, okay, yeah, it's mine. But I, I'm, I think I'm, I, as soon as you say you're humble, you're not humble. Because, right. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, it's a weird sort of thing. That's that but, line between confidence and, you know, yeah, you know, Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm confident about what I've created, but I'm also humbled every day by the women that I get to be around. It's amazing what you've created. How many women do you have in the group now? Over... Well, on the Facebook group, we have uh, 1,100 members, and, um, and we currently have we have four <laughs> different cities that are getting together, nice. uh, Phoenix, Las Vegas, San Diego, and New England, and these are women that all are taking personal development, uh, not, not in the 12-step program arena, but um, it, taking their lives on, and... I, I sometimes get a chance to share my story uh, of recovery with some of these women because sometimes I might be their only example mm-hmm. of what rec- recovery looks like. Uh, and that's one thing that I hold near and dear to my heart as far as like, y- you don't know what that person looks like. Right. You know, when I first got into recovery, I thought, well, I'm not drinking a, 
out of a bottle that's in a bag underneath the bridge. I'm not homeless. I'm not, you know, it's like I was a college student. Um, actually, I was a ski bum. I had just moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado and was hanging out and skiing all the time. That was, I guess that does look like an alcoholic addict. <laughs> well, it looks like success in the life for a lot of people, too. Yeah, you know? exactly. Mean, like, oh, she's living the life. She's doing her dreams. So it's, it's um, you just, I I always hold near to me, to me that I just never know when I could be that example for someone that might be struggling. Mm. Um, yeah, I have a friend right now that's really struggling. And, you know, I, I'm pretty hardcore when it comes to recovery. I'll ask people, so are you done yet? Because... I know for me, I collected enough evidence over the years of knowing that alcohol and drugs were not working for me. And so when someone new comes in, I'll be like, so are you done yet? Or do you need to collect more evidence? Mm. Because if, if what you have right now in your, in your list of things, if that seems like that's enough for you to prove to yourself that you might have a problem, um, then great. Let's. Let's get going. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not certain, I, I go back out there. Go find out. Because recovery is hard. And um, it's got to come from the person. It, I, I admire families that just fight and fight and fight and fight and never give up. And that's amazing um, to the families of people with ac- active alcoholics and addicts in their lives. Uh, you know, don't give up, but don't give in, mm. you know, because the giving in is what's just going to enable them to do it longer. Right. And um, don't it doesn't the serve habit. them. Don't go buy their drugs or their alcohol. Yeah. Don't let them steal from you or treat you abusively. It's it's all that stuff yeah. is just so important. So you, you got to I truly believe that every alcoholic addict has their own bottom and that they need to get to that bottom, whatever it looks like. Someone might be drinking out of a bottle in a paper bag under the bridge, or someone could be someone like me. Mm-hmm. I just graduated from college and was living the life in a ski area. You know, I had a roof over my head. I had a job. Um, from the outside looking in, I didn't have that much of a problem. You know, I hadn't lost anything yet. Right. I'd lost myself. You know, I lost myself years before, but I wasn't at the point where I wanted to to fa- face that. I also would recommend to anyone that's in recovery that um, 12-step meetings are not therapy. And um, I needed to seek outside help mm-hmm. as well. Um, people that attend 12-step meetings are people that are coming together with a common issue and just supporting each other and staying clean and sober. They're not trained professionals. So some people really do need to re- get some outside help, and I did that. Right. Um, there's a lot of people that come into recovery that have um, mental health issues that have been masked for years because of their alcohol or drug use. So you take the alcohol and drugs away and suddenly they're left bipolar or they're left with high anxiety and they're left with all this other issues that they never knew they had. So it's really important to get 
outside professional help, um, counseling and so forth for some issues that are just, they're bigger than what the people in a volunteer basis sort of organization can do. That's good advice. That makes a lot of sense. It, you know, cause, so a lot of times both is needed yeah. or helpful. And you never know, someone could give really bad advice. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, the goal is to stay clean and sober with other people that are doing the same thing. But at the same time, I am not a trained professional. So anyone, anytime I'm talking to someone, I'll be like, listen, that, you know, I would be more than happy to help you with what I know, but I'll be the first one to tell you that's outside my realm. Um, I don't drink and use every day, and it's one day at a time. And... You know, if there's other issues going on, I'll be the first one to say, I really recommend you seeking outside help. I'm not a professional. And someone's life is at stake. You know, so I, I don't pretend, even though I have 27 years, I don't pretend that that's the knowledge base that's going to save someone that has issues that are bigger than what I know about. So if we have somebody listening right now that they're in a place where like, you know what, I think I might have a problem and I want to get some help, what would you tell them? What would your advice be? Uh, definitely uh, seek out 12-step recovery groups. Uh, they're pretty easy to find. And um, never be afraid to walk in the first time because everyone walks in the first time sometime. Everyone that's in that room walked in the first time. Mm. And uh, another thing, too, that I recommend, especially for someone that's new in sobriety, is to write down everything that was caused from alcohol or drugs. Um, anything that could have been unmanageable in your life, anything that was out of control in your life, write it all down. And even write down the things that you think alcohol and drugs didn't have anything to do with. Because if you write down the uncontrollableness of your life and the unmanageability of it, you might look at that list and go, well, that doesn't have anything to do with alcohol. But when you start examining it further, you'll realize, oh, that has everything to do with alcohol. Hmm. You know, I went grocery shopping today. Well, the initial plan was because I was out of milk, but I ended up getting my vodka instead. You know, I mean, it's like it's you have to look at the whole thing. So writing it down and looking at your own evidence of where you are, um, I think, is invaluable. It, it's it's hard, but take an honest look at yourself. You don't have to share it with anyone. You don't have to do anything, but just write it down. Take See what it looks like. What advice do you have for somebody who loves somebody who has addiction? It's really hard. You have to you have to fight, but you also have to let go. Alcohol and drug addiction, alcoholism and drug addiction are just so powerful, so powerful. Keep loving and keep letting them know that you're there for them. However, they've got to hit their bottom. It's, some people manage to keep clean and sober because their family told them to go. I, it, it will stick if they know it themselves. So hang in there. Get support yourself, too. I mean, you don't, if you're the loved one of someone that's dealing with alcoholism and addiction, you have to get support yourself. And there's also 12-step groups for that as well. And different rehab centers have different programs for, um, for families to come into. So it's educate yourself and, and really 
really start to understand the disease because it is a disease. Like if someone gets cancer, we'll do everything in our power to learn about what the, what's going on with them and support them and so forth. But for some reason with alcoholism, we treat it differently. Alcoholism and drug addiction, we treat it differently. Mm. It's a disease though. Um, and so we're more apt to throw the alcoholic and addict out the window and just cast them aside versus someone with cancer we might embrace. And, you know, yeah. So there's, keep that in mind, it is a, a disease. But you also have to let them go their path, too. That's awesome. Do you have anything else that you want to share or you feel like you want to? Mainly that my life is so incredible today because I'm clean and sober. And my worst day clean and sober is better than any of my best days using. And uh, it can happen. And uh, I guess the other thing, too, is I was 24 when I got clean and sober. And for the young people out there, it, you walk in a room with people that are in recovery, and they're all in, they seem really old. <laughs> 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 they seem really old and it's like you know but some of those old people have been around for a while and uh it's i i it's a different world i won't even pretend um that when i got clean and sober to now with all that's available now with the pharmaceuticals and so forth it's a different world mm-hmm with the social media, the being able to access everything so instantaneously. When I get when I got clean and sober, we didn't have cell phones. Right. You know, we had a home phone. <laughs> you know, it, you had to you had to really plan how you were going to get whatever it is that you were going to get. Um, and the ease of it today is just so frightening. Mm-hmm. It's just so frightening. So I I really pray for those the people that are especially the young people that are in in the disease and not even know that they're fighting for their own lives even within their addiction. They just don't know. They don't know. So keep loving them. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing with us. You're very welcome. It's an honor. I'm glad I could be part of it. And I hope I can make a difference in someone else's life as a result, because it is better. So I hope that that episode was informative and helpful for you, as always. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes if you listen on your iPhone and leave us a review. That will help other people find us. I just hope that you guys have a great week. I love you. I see you surrounded with light and love. And I really, really appreciate you for spending your time and for how much I know that you care. Love you. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Support Podcast. Addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. www.addictionsupportpodcast.com.